All right, well, if you can begin making your way back to your seats. I mentioned to you just a moment ago that this morning we are starting to talk about spiritual gifts. Um, I'm kind of, quite frankly, always a bit amazed at how the Lord ends up doing calendars and schedules and sermon series and all these kind of things. Um, and so if you've been around for any length of time, you kind of know that, that, that the bread and butter of Sunday mornings is we just walk through books of the Bible. And occasionally we, we, we do a series that's, you know, three weeks or four weeks, but we're just walking through books of the Bible. And so right now we're in the midst of 1 Corinthians, and the very beginning parts of this series started about two and a half years ago. And it started with just me thinking and being prompted by the Holy Spirit that in the year 2019, we should walk through the book of 1 Corinthians. And as I began to do that and think about that, it was not lost upon me that eventually we were going to get to chapters 12, 13, and 14. And those are the chapters about spiritual gifts. And Honestly, those are the chapters that within perhaps the broader church world, there's been a lot of disagreement for a long period of time about what those verses mean, what spiritual gifts are, what they are not, how they should be used, how they should not be used, and all of the things in between. And I knew we just couldn't stop at chapter 11 and then skip to 15. Like I knew we were going to have to just kind of walk through that and these chapters and so as I try and do is I went to the elder team and I said look I I feel like the Lord is leading me and us to 1 Corinthians become 2019 and I am fully aware that we're going to get to chapter 12 and we can't skip it and so what I need to do is I need to put down on paper for you guys what I believe those chapters say so that you can then interact and we can interact together about that. And if we're in agreement, then I'm going to, in some ways, interpret that as, as a bit of a green light to move forward. And if we're in disagreement, then I'm going to interpret that as 1 Corinthians not supposed to happen in 2019. So you can understand then perhaps the conclusions that emerged from that because we are in 1 Corinthians here in this year. And so what emerged as I began to put things on paper was uh, the, the better part of about a seven or eight year personal journey that I had undergone that began when we were back in Indiana and began when two different individuals in our church in Indiana got incredibly, incredibly sick. It was our pastor's wife, and then it was a young lady who was just about two years older than Carrie and I, and was mentored, or I'm sorry, Carrie was mentored by her. And our church had to walk through that, and it was hard. And both of those ladies lost their battles to cancer, and they did so about three months apart from one another. Um, one, actually, the anniversary was just a couple days ago, the other's Labor Day weekend, and that caused then the beginning kind of wrestlings within our church body um, about what do we do with healing? 
how do we pray for healing? Should we pray for healing? Uh, what about miracles? I mean, like we, we can find a verse that talks about that, but how does that all kind of work? And, and, and so that was kind of the beginning seeds of that. And then what really threw me headlong into what I've since begun to describe, kind of this theological rabbit hole, is there was a young college student that had been incredibly involved in our lives. She was on our Operation Barnabas team. She lived in our home during the summers when she did not go back to her own home but stayed in our house. Um, Allegra called her aunt, and she was just incredibly close to us, perhaps a, a, a little sister type of relationship. And uh, she came over one night, and we had put Allegra to bed, and Carrie and I were playing a game, and she said, I, I, I'm enrolling in a, in a new school. Okay, that's that, okay. Um, and she said, it, it's the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. And I had all sorts of alarm bells ringing off in my mind. And it just, just didn't know what exactly to do with it or what to do with that or her. In some ways, part of the personal struggle was major life choices up to that point. She had asked for Carrie and I's input. Like, should I buy this car? Should I go to that apartment? I mean, those kind of conversations, that was the relationship we had. And, and, and here it was just, uh, I, I'm going. I've been accepted. I've, I'm enrolled. I'm, I'm leaving. And I wanted you guys to know. And so my immediate gut reaction was like, there is trouble here. And I began then the process of trying to figure out what exactly that school taught. And what the scriptures teach and it caused me perhaps for the first time to actually have to go to the scriptures and not just take what a college professor said or somebody might have said or any of those really positive influences godly people but to go myself and that threw me into about a two and a half year long theological rabbit hole where every waking moment that was not spent in um, preparation for music or a youth group lesson or preaching on Sunday mornings was devoted to studying this stuff. And it was only about two and a half, three years after that, I felt like I began to maybe start crawling out of this hole that I found myself in. And in the midst of that, I began to observe some things in broader culture. Right about this same period of time, as those two ladies lost their battle to cancer, as this good friend of ours enrolled in a supernatural school, culturally there was some things happening with what is referred to as the signs and wonders movement. Officially, it'd be called the New Apostolic Reformation. And those are just kind of official church terms to throw in that. Um, but bands like Jesus Culture and Bethel Music, and others began touring. And they began hosting nights of worship in ministry. And those nights were full-blown, let's sing, and then we're going to come forward if you need prayer for healing, or we're going to move in that direction. And culturally, these things began to be experienced throughout, really, uh, the American Christian church in ways that they hadn't for at least some time, and I began then observing that. And so all of these things kind of all converged together, 
and drove me to consider what exactly does the scriptures teach about spiritual gifts in ways that I had never thought about before. And so two and a half years ago now, 1 Corinthians. Hey, elder team, I think the Lord's leading me to preach through this book. We're going to get to chapter 12 eventually. I need to tell you guys what I believe about these chapters. And so I just, I just sat down and started to write. And it will not surprise you at all. Um, it was not brief. What emerged was a single-spaced, typed, 20-page paper um, about these things. And we began to have some dialogue about it. We began to discuss it. Um, I, I personally think the feedback and the input was incredibly valuable, and the discussion was really, really good. And we find ourselves now here, in large part because of those meetings two and a half, two years ago, um, but then as I also think about just kind of the timing of things and where we are here in this moment, in these chapters, in this week, um, there's another thing that i got to share with you as well. Um, that paper continued to get developed. I continued to write. I realized it wasn't just chapters 12, 13, and 14 in 1 Corinthians that spoke about spiritual gifts. It was also Romans chapter 12. It's also Ephesians chapter 4. It's also 1 Peter. And, and, and there needs to be a distinguishing between signs and wonders and spiritual gifts. And so I just kind of started putting all of this out there. And a couple months ago, submitted that to the Brethren Missionary Herald Publishing Company. It's called BMH for short. If you get the Grace Connect magazine or their newsletters that come digitally, that's the same company. They are the publishing company for our fellowship. And it was last Tuesday that I submitted to them my rough draft of a book that they are going to publish in 2020 on spiritual gifts, what they are not, what they are, and this is this kind of new journey that I'm walking through. I'll be quite honest with you. I got the name of the editor on Thursday from the publisher. It felt like I was turning in a term paper to an English professor. I'm reading her website and I'm reading like all the, like the, she has blog posts about like specific things about like verb conjugations and syntax and all this stuff. And, and I, I'm, I'm a bit terrified because turning term papers into English professors was a terrible experience for me in college. It never went well. And uh, I feel like that's exactly what I have done this past Tuesday, and so this process of editing and refining has now begun in an official sense, and the beginning months of 2020 um, is, is set to have this book released. Um, working title right now is called To Each is Given, subtitle Spiritual Gifts in the Life of the Church. And, uh, and so I'm excited about that, and that's just, again, one of the ways that as you have encouraged me to be involved in our fellowship, um, that's an expression of that. But it began some two and a half years ago as the Lord was prompting me to think about 1 Corinthians, and as we engaged in some of that at an elder level as well. Um, 
So as we begin chapter 12, here's what we're going to do over the next couple weeks, the next three weeks in particular. Uh, We're going to kind of be high level in thinking about spiritual gifts. We're going to find ourselves in verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 12 for the next three weeks. And it's not that we're going to just spend time unpacking every word and kind of dissecting every inch of each word or every, uh, every letter within each word is we're going to try to answer some big picture questions and do so before we get to the list of gifts that Paul outlines in chapter 12. So today's question in large regard is what are spirit or what are not, I'm going to, I can't even say it. We're going to talk about what spiritual gifts are not. Next week, we're going to talk about what they are, not in the details of the spiritual gift of fill-in-the-blank, but what they are in the sense that there's a purpose for them. There's a goal behind them. You've been given one if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, at least one, perhaps more. And then week three, we're going to talk about what Paul says in verse three, where he gives a test and how you discern whether or not what you see or what is experienced is actually of the Spirit or not. And then we're going to begin to get a little bit more detailed as we go and as we continue throughout 1 Corinthians. We'll hit verses 4 to 7, look at the different variety that the Lord through the Holy Spirit has given, and then we get into verse 8 and we actually begin to just talk about the specific gifts. And we'll define them. We'll talk about what they are, what they are not. Um, When we get to that spot, I'm going to tell you we're not going to do a lot with tongues at this point because chapter 14 is almost entirely devoted to tongues. And so we're just going to not cover tongues in 12 and we'll just kind of wait and get there in 14 because I think 14 is incredibly important in understanding what tongues are, what they are not, how they are a gift and all of those types of things. Things. So that's a little bit of where we're going to go over the next several weeks. Today, again, we're going to be thinking about what spiritual gifts are not. And if you're taking notes, which I encourage you to do, because we're actually going to have some definitions to try to even get our minds oriented around some common language that we can think through some of these things, I think you're going to want to write some of this down. Um, so the short answer to that question about what spiritual gifts are not is they are not signs and wonders. And we're going to try to unpack that here this morning. But before we go any further, let's pray, and then we'll hop in to the text, and we'll begin thinking about, again, this distinguishment between signs and wonders and spiritual gifts. Father God, we pray and ask that you'd help us to think well as we think this morning that you would help us to to hear what it is that you want us to hear, that we would see and perceive and understand what it is that you want us to see and perceive and understand. God, we pray that your spirit would be moving and active in this place, that even while this morning might be a little bit more information, that he would be free in our hearts and in our lives to work in ways that we need work done. 
God, your word tells us that you've given every single one of us who are believers at least a gift, if not more, to serve and to build this body. God, as we think through these things and find ourselves on kind of the front side of this journey, God, would you help us to find clarity in how it is that you've gifted us, how we might use those gifts and serve others. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. In large part, our entire definition of Christ-centered serving is informed by this reality that, and teaching that the Holy Spirit has given gifts. So we believe that God, through the Holy Spirit, has gifted every believer, regardless of age, with gifts to serve the body of Christ. And furthermore, God has created each of us with unique abilities and passions that we are to use to love and serve both those inside and outside the church for his glory. So God's gifted you to serve and to build the body of Christ. But then you might just have passions and, and, and skill sets that can be put to use for the benefit of those who are inside the church and who are believers or for the benefit of those who are not inside the church and perhaps for those that you have been praying for or maybe that you've been trying to witness to. And, and so there, there's a distinguishment between the two of them in part because spiritual gifts are for the building up of the body. And we'll unpack that much further next week as we think about what it is they are in a big picture sense. And beginning in verses 1 or verse 1 of chapter 12, Paul's going to begin introducing his instruction to the church in Corinth about what he wants them to know regarding spiritual gifts. And it's not the only place that he's written about gifts. I've mentioned Romans 12, Ephesians 4, Peter talks about gifts in his first letter. But here Paul has some things for the church in Corinth, and they appear to be the answers to questions they had submitted to him. And we know that because of the very first two words that verse 1 begins with, now concerning. And we've seen those words time and time again. It's not the last time we're going to see them. We're going to see them a couple more times. Those words serve to transition the letter to a topic that appears to address a question either that was given to Paul in writing or perhaps maybe just something he had heard that he knows that he needs to address. And he writes, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. That word uninformed literally means without knowledge. The knowledge there is the same word he used in chapter 8 verse 1 where he writes that knowledge puffs up. And in chapter 8, he wasn't throwing away knowledge. He wasn't saying that you shouldn't have knowledge, that all you need is, is lovey-dovey love. But he was saying that your knowledge needs to be informed by love and it needs to be serving the purpose of building up. So you can be knowledgeable about something and can be an arrogant jerk. Or you can be knowledgeable about something and use that knowledge in productive ways that serve others and that's the big idea here. I want you to be 
informed. I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be without knowledge. Now concerning spiritual gifts. It's interesting that if we went to the Greek text and what Paul wrote, the word gifts doesn't actually show up in verse 1 here. It's the word spiritual. It's the only word that is there. And that's a word that has been used several different times in the book of 1 Corinthians. And it's an adjective. It's a descriptive word. It's a word that describes something. So in chapter 10 when he talked about you drank from the same spiritual rock and you ate the same spiritual food. It's that same word, spiritual, describing something. Well, Paul in chapter 2 uses this word to describe people. He talks about people of the Spirit. And he talks about them in ways that distinguish them from people who are not of the Spirit. And chapter 2 is about kind of how you, how you understand and unpack who it is that follows the Lord and what the Holy Spirit has done in their lives and who it is that doesn't. And so you might have a footnote in your Bible that says, or spiritual persons. Because the word gifts isn't actually in the text there. It's just added because of the context of what chapters 12, 13, 14 about, or are about. And so there's no question that chapters 12, 13, and 14 are about spiritual gifts. But I do think it's important, and I would say that Paul begins the discussion in verses 1, 2, and 3 talking about people who have the Spirit, people of the Spirit. Because what he begins to then walk through in verse 2 and verse 3 is not a list of gifts per se, but the actions of people. So go back to the text Now concerning spiritual gifts, we might say spiritual persons, persons of the Spirit, persons who have the Spirit. Brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. And that's a throwback to chapter 10 and what he was talking about and how the sacrifice that pagans make to idols, they do so to demons. That there's a demonic element involved in the worship of idols. It's not just a statue. It's not just the physical. There is something spiritual. And he's talking first about the past experiences of those in the church to say, just think back. You know, the word know there is actually a different word. It's a word that can have a, an experiential context to it. You know, you experienced that when you were pagans or unbelievers, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. There's a difference between those who are of the Spirit, those who have the Spirit, and those who are not. And he writes in verse 3 of what that difference looks like in their speech. Those who are not of the Spirit would say Jesus is accursed. And no one who has the Spirit is going to say that Jesus is accursed. Those who have the Spirit will say Jesus is Lord. But no one who does not have the Spirit would say that. Because as we learned in chapter 2, it's because of the Spirit that someone would actually even say that. And so this conversation about spiritual gifts first begins as a way of looking at who 
spiritual persons are. And the distinction between those who are with the Spirit, who have been given the Spirit, and those who are not. Within the American church, perhaps just the church worldwide, there exists a wide variety of conclusions about what spiritual gifts are. I want to give you some definitions as we just begin to think through and kind of, again, lay some foundations this morning focusing more on what they're not. But I want to give you some definitions of some of the main camps, theological camps, if you will. And so if you've got notes and you're taking them, these would be some of the big ideas to write down. And it, it kind of all hinges on whether or not all the gifts are available or only some of the gifts are available. And we'll get into that a little bit as we go. But the cessationist conviction would say that some spiritual gifts are available. They would look at the list in 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 8, and, con- and going through verses 9 and 10, and they'd say, well, not all of those gifts are still happening and active today. Some of those gifts were sign gifts, and you might have heard that term used to describe gifts at one point. Others of those gifts were edifying gifts. They still exist. They're to edify the church. They're to build up the church. They're to serve the church. But the sign gifts are not gifts that currently are for today because some gifts have ceased, which is where we get the word cessationist. Well, the charismatic perspective is one that's actually a little bit harder to nail down because there's there's degrees of charismatic people, if you will. They would, in a big picture sense, all agree that all spiritual gifts are available. They'd look at the list in 1 Corinthians 12 and they'd go, well, there's no expression of stopping. So why are we concluding that some have? But within that, then you have the Pentecostal traditions. There, the emphasis is going to be placed on a baptism of the Holy Spirit, which would be confirmed by the experience of speaking in tongues. Now, here in a couple weeks, we're going to talk about baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is something that happens immediately upon salvation and something that is not confirmed by the speaking of tongues. I would offer significant disagreement to that theological perspective, but within the charismatic umbrella, your Pentecostal church is going to place a heavy degree of emphasis on this second experience, if you will, or baptism of the Holy Spirit, which has been then confirmed by tongues. The charismatic would be those who really largely trace their roots to what had occurred in the 1960s and 70s as the charismatic movement. But then there's this third group called continuationists. It's kind of a new group. It's a new term. Perhaps maybe not a term that you've heard before. They would be the groups that would say, or they would be those in the group that they would say, we're, we're open but we're cautious. We, we think the gifts are still for today. We, we kind of theologically, biblically can conclude that the gifts are for today. But how we see them in action 
doesn't really look like what we see in the scriptures. It kind of looks like a lot of chaos a lot of times. I would put myself in that group of continuationist. That's the perspective that I contend for in this book that I've written. That all the gifts are available, but I'm pretty uncomfortable with how they have been largely used, if not abused, throughout the church. There's that new apostolic reformation that I mentioned to you before. They would say and agree that all spiritual gifts are available, but to that, there's this addition of, but we got to have signs and wonders, and we got to chase signs and wonders. Let me quote from one of the guys at the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. That school is a part of that. Bethel music is a part of this. Jesus culture is a part of this. That new apostolic reformation. Let me quote from one of their prophets. And we'll get into that here in just a moment as well. He writes, Sustaining a supernatural lifestyle where signs and wonders follow us is therefore totally dependent on living out our true identities as sons and daughters of God. You see there's an emphasis. You can hear an emphasis on we want signs and wonders to follow us. And I told you this man is a prophet. That's the other mark, distinguishing mark of this new apostolic reformation is they would say there are still today capital A apostles like Paul who you need to submit yourselves or your church need to submit itself to. There are still capital P prophets existing today like Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And when they speak, they're receiving from the Lord new scripture that you need to submit to because it's on par with what we have as well in the 66 books of the New Testament, I'm going to submit that we need to completely reject the things the New Apostolic Reformation is giving us. It is dangerous. That two and a half year rabbit hole of that theological journey, trying to figure out what our friend was getting into, did nothing but then just confirm all of those warning bells and alarms that went off in my spirit that night. She said, I'm going. There are songs that we don't sing in our church because they've been written by artists that are a part of that group. Individually, they're good songs, good lyrics. You probably hear them on the radio, but collectively, I'm just of the conviction that i got to protect us however I can from those influences. And so it even works itself out in some of those really specific practical ways. So then there's the Karis Fellowship. What do we believe about spiritual gifts? It's a great question. Because there's nothing official. We have managed to only say in our statement of faith that we believe the Holy Spirit gives gifts. And that's it. And in the process of taking the statement of faith from, I believe it was the 80s, maybe before that, and... And, and working through a new commitment to common identity that just our church voted on a couple years ago. Uh, even the initial drafts of that identity statement didn't include anything about gifts. It was one of the things that those of us involved in some of the initial rough draft work said, hey, are, are we going to put something in there that the Holy Spirit does give gifts? Because he does. 
Is it gonna, and, and so there we, the, the document just says, we believe the Holy Spirit's given gifts. Now, by and large, if I had to give you kind of my gut instinct as to where you'd find most Karis Fellowship or Grace Brethren churches to land, it would be in the cessationist category. So if you kind of took a poll around and just say, hey, do you, believe that, you know, do you believe that all the spiritual gifts in the New Testament are for today? You'd probably get the answer, no, we don't. Now, I'm of the opinion that in large regard, that's a conviction made because of all of the abuse of certain gifts. And I would also then submit that we have not done a good job distinguishing signs and wonders from spiritual gifts. So let's think about that here real briefly. And it's got to be briefly because i got about seven minutes left. Signs and wonders are not spiritual gifts. So the term sign gifts would be a term that I would say we need to no longer use in part because it's a term that is nowhere found in the New Testament. The word signs is used in the New Testament. It is one that shows up, it can have its meaning as an event with special meaning. That's this definition. But the word signs is never used in conjunction or coordination with the word gifts. Signs, they're miraculous and they're non-miraculous. They're just events that have special meaning. Now, Jesus certainly did miraculous things. John tells us in his gospel they were signs. The first of Jesus' signs was the wedding feast of Canaan, turning the water into wine. John tells us that's a, a sign. Jesus was asked along and throughout his ministry, give us a sign. We want to know. We, wanna, we want a sign of the reality and the proof that you're the Messiah. Just an event with special meaning. They certainly are miraculous, but they also can be non-miraculous. In Matthew 12, 38, then some of the Pharisees answered him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. The Pharisees are saying, hey, blow our minds, please. If you would just do something that would wow us, then we would put our faith and trust in you. And he rose from the grave, and they still didn't, so I'm not sure that they were genuine in their request. But nevertheless, non-miraculous signs... Luke, and this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Now, there was, there was unbelievable, miraculous things taking place in the virgin birth and the incarnation of Christ. Mary putting a blanket around Jesus was not a miracle, but it was a sign. See the difference there? But the shepherds learned they found the right baby when they saw the blanket wrapped around him. Judas, hey, the man I kiss will be a sign that that's the one to arrest. There was nothing miraculous in the sense that Judas kissed Jesus' cheek. But it was a sign. Paul uses the word sign like that as well, but then you have the word wonders. Wonders is this astonishing event that transcendentally defines reality. It does blow your mind. You go, oh my goodness, we just fed 
5,000 people. Oh my goodness, the waves and the winds just stopped. Oh my, I mean, these are the wonders. But it's interesting that the word wonders never shows up in the New Testament apart from the word signs. Fifteen different times the word wonders is going to show up in the New Testament. And every one of those times it either says signs and wonders. Or sometimes you get the inverse, wonders and signs. Signs and wonders were told in the New Testament in 2 Thessalonians 2 along with Matthew 24 and in the book of Mark, they are a characteristic of the Antichrist. Signs and wonders, though, positively confirm the authority of the gospel message and messenger. So in thinking through that spiritual gifts are not signs and wonders, here's how these things would be defined then. And Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2.9 and says the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan and will be with all powerful or power and false signs and wonders. Jesus said in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray if possible even the elect. So in some sense The claim and the desire and the chasing for signs and wonders is something that should cause great alarm and pause. As Jesus indicated, that would be a characteristic of false prophets and false teachers. And Paul said that'll be a characteristic of the Antichrist. But in the book of Acts and throughout the ministry of Paul, signs and wonders did confirm the authority of the gospel. This new message and the messengers that took that message. So who performed signs and wonders? Well, in Stephen's speech before the Pharisees that wouldn't believe him, we're told that Moses did. As we just thought through, we're told the Antichrist will or perhaps false prophets and teachers are. Jesus is credited as performing signs and wonders. You have the apostles, you have Stephen, you have Philip, you have Barnabas, you have Paul, and then Hebrews 2.4 tells us that God himself did, and I would say that would be God himself through these others was doing so as he was confirming the message there. And here's what I want to do just real briefly here at the end, is I just want to take a look at that list And I want us to think about what the mission that Jesus gave the disciples in Acts chapter 1 was and then what we see happening. And so as it relates to signs and wonders, I am of the conviction that the signs and wonders have ceased with the apostles. That when the last apostle died, which had been John on the island of Patmos, after he, sometime after he wrote the book of Revelation, signs and wonders ceased. And we should not expect signs and wonders in any context other than false teachers, false prophets, and eventually the Antichrist. And so it was the apostles and three notable exceptions that are credited in the New Testament with performing signs and wonders. We're told in Acts 2.3, or Acts 2.43, that the 
Apostles were doing signs and wonders. That's the big idea in Acts 5.12. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12.12 that his apostolic ministry was actually confirmed by signs and wonders. And so there is without a doubt and without argument the reality that the apostles performed signs and wonders. The questions then become, well, who were the other people? And was it a limited list or was it a wide expansive list? I would contend it's a limited list. And you have Stephen in Acts 6 verse 8. We're told that he performed signs and wonders. You have Philip. The word wonders doesn't show up there. But I, I'm going to say it's implied from Acts 8, 12 to 13. And I realize that's a tenuous con, uh, conclusion. But then you have Barnabas in Acts 14 and Acts 15. So why those three guys? And why do those three guys matter? And how does that relate to Acts chapter 1? Well... When the disciples got together with Jesus, and they said, hey, is this when you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And I'm always amazed by the fact that they wanted Jesus to be glorified and seen as famous, but they wanted it in ways that he hadn't planned for those things to happen. Is this now when you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus responds, well, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And we, we take that as to be part of our marching orders. But then you just begin to look at the pages of Acts and what Luke records. Their ministry began in Jerusalem and Judea. And then it expanded out into Samaria. And it expanded once again into the uttermost parts of the earth. And so Stephen... He's killed by the Pharisees, by the religious leaders. You want to guess where he was when he was performing signs and wonders? It's Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Judea being the Jewish audience. Philip, performing signs and wonders, did so in Samaria. Paul and Barnabas, performing signs and wonders, did so before a Gentile audience. The uttermost parts of the earth. And so as God began to confirm this brand new message. This good news. That, that there, there is news and it is good. And you need, to li- you need to hear it. And you need to surrender your lives to it. And as he began to communicate that. He did so and confirmed these men. The apostles and three others as those who were authorized on his behalf to speak and who were speaking things that were true. And those signs and wonders in Acts 15 verse 12 that Barnabas and Paul report to the Jerusalem council that they had done became one of the instrumental factors in the Jerusalem council which was composed of Jewish elders and the apostles who were all Jews That was one of the instrumental factors in them going, yeah, the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles. They're in. Because God's confirmed it in their midst as he did in ours. But then after Acts 15, when that conclusion's made, signs and wonders are never spoken again as occurring in the local church as Luke writes. 
Paul does so to say, my ministry's been confirmed that way. But there's no report of any other local church experience to ever happen. So what spiritual gifts are not? First and foremostly, they're, they're not signs and wonders. And the chasing of signs and wonders, the, the advocacy of signs and wonders, the, 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 the movement towards that needs to be something that causes alarm bells to go off in all of us. Because they are actually, today, characteristics of false teachers and prophets. Eventually, when the time comes, they will be one of the foremost characteristics of the Antichrist. So spiritual gifts are not signs and wonders. They're gifts. They're gifts, and God's given every one of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus at least a gift, if not many, or a few, so that we can love and serve and build his body. So next week, we'll think a little bit more then about the purpose of what these gifts are, and we'll keep working our way a little bit more detailed and a little bit more focused as we go, and eventually we'll work through what are the gifts, how are they defined? How can they be used? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you, you did come in Jesus. And you paid the price for our sin. And this good news then that there was salvation in his name and his name alone became this message that was taken to the farthest parts of the world. God, as we begin this journey of thinking through what spiritual gifts are and how you might have gifted some of us to serve in unique ways and impassioned us, God, give us clarity in our minds. Help us to think through these things well. And help us to do so for your glory and your fame and the, 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 the renown of your name in ways that you want it done. That we wouldn't be like those disciples in Acts 1 or the apostles in Acts 1 who, who wanted Jesus to be glorified and made famous. But wanted to do it in ways that you hadn't fixed by your own authority. So God, as we think about that, as we talk about glorifying you by making disciple making disciples God help us to do it in ways that you want us to do it in and not in our own we pray this in Jesus good name amen